Welcome to the MSU Press Podcast, where we talk about university press publishing with some of the authors, editors, and publishers who make it happen from the campus of Michigan State University. On today's episode, we're joined by Daniel Lassell to discuss his book, Spit. Thanks for tuning in. In a poem called How to Be a Poet, Wendell Berry insists there are no unsacred places. There are only sacred places and desecrated places. In many ways, an exploration of what makes a place sacred to ourselves and our memories and what might ultimately desecrate a place, Daniel Lassell's debut collection, Spit, examines the roles we play in the act of belonging. The first ever poetry book set on a llama farm, Spit is a portrait of a boy living on a farm populated with chickens sung to sleep by lullabies, captive wolves next door that attack a child, and a herd of llamas learning to survive despite the coyotes and the chaotic family. The collection explores the body and health and illness and how we treat the earth and others. Trailing a thread of spirituality, the speaker treks into adulthood, yearning for peace amid the decline of his parents' marriage. Driven by a wish to visit some landless landscape, the speaker eventually leaves his family's farm, only to find that return is impossible. After losing the farm and the llama herd to his parents' divorce, the book's speaker wrestles with the role of presence as it relates to healing remarking, I wish enough to have only these memories I have. Unflinching at every turn, Spit pushes the boundaries of home to arrive upon new meaning, definition, and purpose. As Rebecca Gale Howell puts it, Spit is at once a coming-of-age story and an elegy for that so-called coming-of-age, a necessary guidebook for anyone hoping to go home again. I'm happy to have Daniel Lassell here to talk about Spit, poetry, Home, Place, and of course, Llamas. He is the author of Ad Spot, a limited edition chapbook, and his poems have appeared in the Colorado Review, Southern Humanities Review, Puerto del Sol, the Birmingham Poetry Review, and Prairie Schooner. He grew up in Kentucky, where his family raised llamas and alpacas, and he now lives in New York with his wife and children. Dan, you thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. I, you know, it's, we sort of have to start with the obvious question about the llamas and the llama farm and the sort of origin of this book in that history. But I wonder if we could approach it from a slightly different angle and ask you to describe a little bit what a llama farm looks like and what it's like to grow up on one. (laughs) I'm not sure if our llama farm looked very much like other llama farms, um, just the number that I've been on, but Our llama farm was sort of landlocked in the middle of Kentucky, somewhere between Eminence and Newcastle, Kentucky, so closer to Newcastle than Eminence. The llamas themselves, they we we converted a an old tobacco barn into sort of a place for them to to live during the night and and during the day when they wanted shade, and we would give them grain at at night and, and water and stuff from there. So it was an old pig farm and cattle farm that was in tobacco farm that was converted into this llama farm. We put in fencing when we came and and bought the farm and uh, made it work for us. Llamas are interesting creatures. They have padded feet like a dog, so they don't tear up the soil like another animal might. When they eat, 
they cut the grass like a lawnmower. So in terms of degradation to the land itself, they're, they're really quite good to the environment around them. They are like cats in that they like to poop in piles and instead of just anywhere they please. They, they poop in like little pellets, like, like deer or, you know, what we would make jokes and stuff. At, like with our friends, we would put like chocolate covered raisins on the ground and, and go over to a, um, what seemed like a pile of, of llama crap and start picking it up and eating it and scaring our friends. <laughs> but they're just, they're just wonderful creatures. If I could maybe describe their personality, they're a little bit like a cat. They're very affectionate, but only on their own terms. <laughs> I'm not sure if that answered your question or not. <laughs> no, I think it did. And I think I've got a number of follow-up questions that I think will give folks a sense of the kind of sense of place that's involved in the book and the way that the llama farm and the creatures who live on it are characters and provide a setting for the sorts of conflicts that are happening in the book and the kind of coming of age that I talked about in the introduction, you know, thinking about the games that you can play as the owner of a herd of llamas is a kind of childhood experience specific unto the, the owner of a herd of llamas. One thing that I noticed in your answer resonated with one of the poems in the book, Sinkhole, where you describe a vulture as carrying within it the bodies of all of the creatures that it eats within its body. And in your description of the farm, you mentioned a number of its former uses. It had been a tobacco farm. It had been a pig farm. It became a llama farm by the book's end. It's purchased by a rich family who the mother in the book laments is going to turn it into a hunting lodge. So we see this place having all of these different purposes and all of these different histories. What does it do to your sense of home to grow up in a place like that where the layers of its history are still present and accessible to you? The history that you know of, of the place, does really shape the sacredness, appreciation, or just um, grief that you have of the landscape that you're on. You know, it used to be pig farm, cattle farm, and all those other uses but before us, but even before then. You know, we would hike down to creek beds and find like flint shards from the native people that that lived on that land well before us. And, and that was a very sobering experience, too. So I do think, you know, there there is always good that has happened on land and there is always bad, I think, that has happened on land within the U.S. especially. And I, I think um, land perseveres as, as best it can, I think. I think it's the duty of of us as humans today to treat land with the respect that it deserves, and that you know every land carries it carries a sacredness and a, and a desecration. I think simultaneously, all land does. Yeah, I really think we see that in the depictions of the farm that you've mentioned. The the thinking about the layers. I'm happy that you pointed out, you know, even earlier indigenous uses of the land because it it we can't forget that these things are all layered on top of land that was inhabited before settlers came to America and built tobacco farms. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. To that end, I wanted to ask about llamas specifically. The llamas not an indigenous species to North America. As far as I know, they were imported here yeah. for commercial purposes, you know, to make wool, to use for textiles, those kinds of things. 
was your llama farm a commercial endeavor or was it more of a hobby? Yeah. So <laughs> it might have been uh, an ambition at first when we got llamas to turn it into a commercial thing, but it was it was largely a hobby, I think. My mom just loved sewing and knitting and anything that involved sort of textile work. Uh, she really loved, except quilting, because growing up, I, I sort of ruined that for her when I was very little <laughs> and got into her supplies. And she said, oh, that's enough. But everything else, she she just loved working with different fabrics and with different wools. And, and alpaca wool was one of those wools that she just adored. So she had always grown up dreaming of having an alpaca farm. And llamas, you know, are, are cousins, I would say, of alpacas. So llamas came along with, with that aspect when we, um, we approached a, a family that my siblings went to school with. And yeah, they introduced us to this quote unquote llama club in Southern Indiana. And we just, you know, we joined their little club and, and really had a good time and purchasing a, a farm, some land to house some llamas and alpacas for us just seemed like a, a natural fit to, to really feed the, the passions that my mom and dad were really focused on, which was, you know, in, in one part sewing and, um, and caring for animals. And then in the other, just, just having some, some space away from the noise of the environment that, you know, I, I had up until that point grown around. So um, they had just wanted a space for their kids to, to run and play. And so a farm was it. I find it really fascinating the degree, you know, these are the kinds of things I think that are more difficult for folks who are raised in urban areas to really comprehend the degree to which like raising animals, caring for them, it's not just a sort of set of mechanical chores. It's actually a lifestyle endeavor and your daily habits and your thoughts get entwined with the needs and the desires of the animals that you care for. Could you say a little bit about what it does to a young person to live in such close proximity to a group of llamas, particularly, or just on a farm more generally, like, you know, chickens and, and other creatures who live in the same space as you do when, when you're coming of age, when you're thinking about who you are and what it means to be a person in the world? Yeah, I think that no matter where you live, whether it's in the city, suburb, country, you're shaped by the landscape that surrounds you and by the community that surrounds you. And sometimes when that community is animals, <laughs> they're inevitably going to shape your experience and how you sort of view the world. My family always was very much against hunting so that we were a bit of an anomaly in the area where the land where I grew up was viewed as my, by my parents as, as being a sanctuary to those who hunted around us. And uh, I think you just sort of, you grew up with an appreciation of how like alike and, and dislike you are from the animal world that is around you, that you experience. I think coming of age on a farm that, that at times was just so isolating because it was really far from where I went to school and where most of my friends were. So having my friends over at any time was always a, a very special occasion. But it was hard. 
I found myself always sort of yearning to be with, you know, the, the community that I desired, which was, you know, friendships and just to be around more people because you sort of grow up understanding, you know, the, the connection that you have to the natural landscape and the, and the wildlife around you, but then you spend less time around other people. You always want what, what you don't have, I guess, is, <laughs> I don't know. I'm not sure. It's still something that I'm grappling with that, you know, that question you posed. Wonder, Daniel, if this would be a good time uh, to read the poem myself, A Barbed Wire. Sure. Because there's there's an interesting um, tension you're describing with this being a young person and wanting to have a lot of friends and attend social circumstances, but being accustomed to living you know, further away and so that those events are less common and maybe that fashions something about the self. I would love to hear this poem as we sort of think about that. Sure, yeah. Myself, a barbed wire. Early this morning, I wander into the farther fields and find in the farm of my heart a warmth peeled back, ventricles open, a craving untenable, the strings of arteries wound into bows. The barbed wire of this clearing loop-de-loops with wind into odd sunsets. At night, their points narrow to the moon, to several planets orbiting personal stars. And the trees have become fence posts. Ore has become wire, some artifact that once twined with rocks beneath me. Evolution equals fate equals. Some might claim a sameness of barbs, saying they've been fashioned to be the same, but I See how they are distinct in their line, even though meant to draw lines, to keep out or in. In mist, how tiny droplets cling to the barbs, then exit when the sunlight comes. Thank you for that. Such a lovely set of images and such a complicated way of thinking about oneself, you know, in relation to place and human space in the world. I want to linger a little bit longer on what it's like to be a young person that close to a certain kind of experience of nature. And I won't go on and on about it, but I I grew up in a relatively rural area. I owned a hobby farm for a while. And I think one of the things that stuck with me after that experience of you know having ducks and chickens and horses, and there's a lot of death that happens that like one has to become a nerd to, especially if it's a kind of hobby experience where these are like almost pets in some way. You have a number of really interesting poems about the death of the llamas and sort of what it is to encounter that. What did those animals mean to you as a young person? And how do you think about that now that they've all gone their separate ways? The llamas become they became sort of a part of our family we did view them as as pets that we would take care of and and love in the same way that we would any other member of the family and you get to understand their unique personalities as i think every animal has a unique personality if you get to know them well enough death obviously as you know is inevitable it happens uh, not just to humans but to every living thing every living being 
death on a farm is, is also something that is inevitable. And if you grew up being attached, so attached to animals and viewing them, you know, as a part of the family that, that you grew up in, then yes, of course, you're going to grieve for them when they pass. And you want them to pass in the most gentle way possible at the same time. So yeah, we, we spent a lot of time with the older animals on the farm, seeing that they would pass in the best way possible. And sometimes you, uh, you have some an- incidents on the farm where, where you experience death in unexpected ways too, such as, you know, if a hawk gets a chicken or a, a possum, you know, gets a chicken or something like that. But you, you still are attached to those animals, even though you recognize that, that they're not human, but they have distinct personalities that you have come to love and they know you well as well. So when I think about the animals going their separate ways, many of the llamas are, are still living today. I have never visited them. I know they live on an, another farm right now. Most of them, uh, some live on different farms, but um, yeah, I, I don't know where that farm is or uh, I know the name of the person who, who has them now, but but that's about it. And I, I occasionally see pictures from my brother who does stay in touch with that person. You know, so I know that they're they're well taken care of. And, you know, they, they have sort of found found a new home, found a new family to really attach on to. So, yeah, there is a, a bit of, of grief and mourning in that. But also, you know, if you believe in an afterlife, it is sort of, you know, viewing in the same way as you would an afterlife, that they've gone on to someone better that I think can take care of them better at this point in time. I wonder, Daniel, as we sort of conclude this section where we're talking about the, the animals and the deaths of animals and complicated relationships with them, if you wouldn't mind reading Taking in the Stray, which is really keyed into this subject. Sure, of course. Taking in the Stray. The day I found you in the barn wandered from home or orphaned. You had so many ticks you lost your sight from blood loss. As you regained your eyes, I helped you find your way about the house. This place, my family welcomed you and you could call your own. And you certainly did. The way you sprawled on couches, the way you consumed rabbits and breezed inside to vomit them on carpet, The way you ate field mice with their tails writhing noodles through your teeth. And the time you brought home a deer limb, crossing the cattle guard to tear its flesh in front of the llamas as they looked around to see if one of them had misplaced a leg. You devoured so many sinless creatures. Yet, I still remember the time You curled beside a fawn to guard it from coyotes after you had eaten its mother. Thank you for that. Yeah. I feel like that poem is such a beautiful encapsulation of the, it's not a contradiction exactly, but that attitude that you mentioned, you know, owning a llama farm, thinking about those creatures as pets, as, as part of the family, as, you know, important individual characters with their own attitudes but also part of this like complicated natural world where things kill each other with abandon and eat each other. And, yes. <laughs> you know, to, to have a resistance to that, like yeah. it's all in that, in that piece. And so I, I, I love to hear it from you. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah. 
that that stray his in real life you know because the, the speaker of the poem is different from myself uh his name was paul and uh he <laughs> he was an interesting dog you you learn to love the family members sin or you love the family member despite their sin i suppose <laughs> You're listening to the MSU Press Podcast. I'm here with Daniel Lassell, author of the poetry collection Spit. So, Daniel, you mentioned in your in your quip there, your anecdote there, and I've said it a few times that the speaker in the book is not you. We've been talking a lot about your your personal experience, your childhood on the farm and, and how it affected you and, and the things that it made you think of. But this is a, a poetry book. It's a work of artifice. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it doesn't, you know, it's not an accurate recounting of your childhood. It's It's something else. I wanted to ask in that regard about the decision to write poems you're dealing with what, you know, the memoirist deals with, you're looking at incidences similar to those that you've experienced, but you're putting them into this poetic form. I mean, it's a simple question, really, why choose poetry to do that exploration, uh, and not some other kind of writing? Yeah, that is a good question. There's something about poetry that I've always, it sort of enamors me, the way that you are able to, in such a tight space, you know, poems tend to be shorter than, say, a novella or a novel. You can create so many different layers of interpretation and resonance. Uh, you can read a poem one day and, and feel a certain resonance, and then you can read it five years from now and, and feel completely different about it and get a different interpretation, a different resonance from it. So I find that so cool. And while I was composing this book. The intention was to have each poem stand by itself, but I also composed the collection as if I were writing a novel or something with a clear narrative arc um, with character development. So there a lot of consideration went into why each poem comes in the order that it does, how the poems are speaking to each other, disagreeing with each other sometimes and and moving that narrative arc along in some way. Yeah, and I I think um, my choice to have the speaker of the poems not be an exact representation of my own life afforded, I think, an artistic liberty of sorts in being able to approach those harder subjects in the book through a lens that I think the book itself really called for. I wasn't so tethered down to the fact of of real life. I could, for instance, I I could conflate different neighbors into a single neighbor and create a more complex character in the collection. Yeah, I, I, and also, you know, considering like the naming of of different characters in in the book, you know, one of the central questions for, for me as I was thinking about too, as I was composing the collection was, who does and doesn't receive a name. When you think about the opening poem in the book, it's about a llama who essentially has two names and and one llama, James and John, Sons of Thunder, (laughs) which is an odd name. But the book itself is centered around sort of how the animals, they receive names, but many of the characters in the book itself do not receive names. So they're referred to as my brother, sister, mom, dad. I think the only humans in the book that actually do receive names are 
spiritual connected humans like St. Peter or Jesus. And they sort of have their own mythos uh, <laughs> involved with them as, as pre-existing characters. But that was another consideration as I was going through the collection was how can I make the book of poems resonate beyond my own personal experience and reach more into the universal human experience. You said that your experience growing up was or wasn't different than my own. And I understood sort of going into a collection about llama farming that not very many other people out there have had this experience. So I needed to make it speak beyond myself. I needed to, to have it connect with people who might not be familiar with llama farming or farming at all. Um, I wanted to, to speak to people who lived in the city, who lived in the suburbs. Um, those were all sort of considerations as I was compiling the collection and editing it for publication. I want to pick up on something that you said there that I think is so compelling about the way that the book works as a book, as you're saying, to bring a very particular experience to a potentially more universal human understanding. And one of the ways that that happens for the characters in the book is through the llamas, you know, in the same way that the llamas bring that experience to the readers of the book. There's a really compelling scene where where the characters bring the llamas to participate in a nativity play. So they're characters at this sort of moment of nativity. They're dressed up as the shepherds and they're all playing their roles with the animals and the birth of Christ and whatnot. Is there something there about who these folks are to each other and then how their life on the farm like connects them to the larger community? Yeah, I tried to to create for the speaker that, that deepened sense of yearning for what is beyond. So I, I didn't, I, it was an intentional decision to not really explore the community surrounding the farm as much as I might in another collection. Of course, I brought in neighbors that immediately surrounded the farm, but it was sort of an intentional decision to, to only bring in the immediate viewpoint that the speaker might have if being on the farm itself. You might look across a field and see the neighbor, for instance, on the other end of a fence or something like that. But once the speaker leaves the farm, then he encounters what is beyond and sort of grapples with the difference between, say, uh, what a city looks like and, and what a rural setting looks like and what is focused on in, in terms of values in each of those areas, some of them similar, some of them not so similar. So it was an interesting journey, I think, in, in terms of compiling the collection itself. There was a lot of deep thought, I think, that, that went into what choices do I make? What do I bring in versus what do I keep out? I feel like I wrote a book like three times the size and then cut it down to like that third of its size for the collection that actually comprises spit. I'd like to come around to maybe a little bit of talking about, about your process and about thinking of writing sort of more abstractly, but I wonder if we should stick with the flow of the narrative of the book just for a few minutes, because it seems like we can't leave off the conversation without talking about 
the loss of the farm and the characters leaving. Would you mind reading Leaving the Farm? And maybe we can talk a little bit afterwards about that transition as you've started to describe away from a rural space into a more urban setting. Sure, sure. Leaving the Farm. I've dropped my roots on concrete slabs. No mud here. Here, they call it filth. And I am a city boy inside the body of a country. My youth speaks a language of disconnected noise. Who travels a decade without collecting scars? I've cut my hands, made them hard on hay bale strings, and I've seen wheat, copper, and sunset bald on the hills. I've seen hope lift and bob and wind, a landscape not of metal, the only towers, silos. Here hovers a different moon, dotted with the firecrackers of gunshots and horn honks. How I miss the fields sometimes. I regret that I've become a person forgotten of silence. I'm trying to find grace in the sternness of a parking meter and crumbling sidewalk squares. Endings can be what the lesser gods call good, but I'm okay if a farm's ending waits a little while. At night, train horns share no whereabouts. Sunlight paints the body of a lamppost, same as any fence slat, even though one surface rests level, the other rounded. What's really striking about that poem compared to some of the others and some of our description is it's so much more attuned to the sort of noise and the atmosphere and the human built things and kind of less attuned to the like layers of of human interaction that are happening or the previous purposes to which a city has been built. I mean, you have to go through so many layers of human sediment before you get to like the obvious natural features of Times Square or whatever. It's really striking that like it's it's more cacophonous. It's more like visceral sound wise. It's much less meditative than um, myself, a barbed wire in terms of the kind of feel of the space and the presence within it. Do you feel an anxiety in cities? Yes and no. So if you if you go to the city from the farm, you're going essentially from a place that is largely silent, but for the natural world around you, to a place of noise that is human created, artificial uh, in some way, to the natural world in, in comparison to the natural world. So there is um, that cacophony as you're talking about, and you do get used to it to some extent, you know, um, you, you assimilate into that new environment, but yeah, th there is a certain anxiety <laughs> that, that you have in the city, you know, but, but there's also a sense of community too, that you may or may not find as pronounced in a, a rural landscape. If you live on a farm and you, and you never leave that farm, then the odds of, of you having more human interaction, you know, <laughs> 
not very much. Maybe you might see a male person come by, you know, or a neighbor might walk over. But the rural landscape community is intimate in the sense that it's one person and then another person. Whereas in a city, it could be you and a crowd of people. The aspect of community becomes much more pronounced. You look around and you see your connection to humanity in, in perhaps a more pronounced way in a city than you might in a rural landscape see how pronounced your connection is with the natural world. In a way, it complicates the ending of the book, I think, or it complicates the kind of severance that happens at the end of the book because you know, you talked about the farm or the rural area as a place where you might have an intimate one-on-one, maybe a familial human relationships and, and maybe not so much community. But in the book, we see the parents' divorce and how that completely turns those intimate relationships on their head and sends everyone kind of scattering. The speaker ends up in one place, the speaker's siblings end up in another place. There's a sort of moment where it seems unclear whether the mother is going to actually leave the farm. She has to kind of be forcefully removed to have oneself then end up in the city mourning the loss of this natural space and and those intimate relationships and encountering both the cacophony of that space and also the potential for renewed community belonging. I feel like it does a good job of mimicking that moment of, you know, the dissolution of a family. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you picked up on that. That was certainly one of the core focuses of the collection that I was really going for was showing the disconnect there and some of those connections as well. Poetry is, is one of those areas where you can walk away from a collection and you might be asking a lot of questions when, say, you know, the author is writing it or you as a reader are entering the collection. It's not necessarily an onus on poetry to answer those questions. You can walk away with, yeah, you might have some answers, but you're not going to have all of them. You might not have any answers. You may have more questions <laughs> by the time you leave a poetry collection. And that, that's one of those, those things about this book where I'm not sure I, I did arrive on a clear answer to anything necessarily by the end of this collection. But it, it is sort of a meditation on um, what does belonging mean? What does a home mean when home ceases to become a physical location. One of the, the, I think the things that I, I did walk away with is that perhaps what we mean when we're talking about home is more of something that we carry with us rather than something that is a place you can go back to, like memory, maybe, that you carry with you. It's where you, you go to find belonging and love and connection. It's really good. It's hard to follow on that, that really powerful insight, because I think that you do manage to capture that in the book, this sense of home as having been born in a place, being rooted in some kind of place, but ultimately, you know, floating about on the breeze of your memory and your experience of the rest of the world. I wonder if 
we could get a little bit abstract. You talked about your collection in this way, that, that it's raising these questions, that it's exploring these notions, that it's giving folks things to think about. Is that your experience of reading other people's poetry? Yes and no. There are obviously some poetry collections that you're more drawn to than others, some that might resonate with you upon reading it for the first time that, you know, 10 years later, you you may not feel that same connection with. And there might be books that you, you don't connect with when you read it the first time. And then maybe years down the road, suddenly it just all makes sense. Um, and that you really do deeply resonate with a collection. So I think it really just depends. There are a lot of books that uh, there's so many good poetry books out there. Uh, it's hard to, to think of any particular one. But, you know, I think the answer is yes, that when I read a poetry book, I try my best to approach the book on its own terms and view it as um, a self-contained entity apart from the author and reading the book for what it is as an artifact of, of art. And as the book raises questions, then I am on that journey with the poet and the poems in sort of exploring that headspace, I guess. It may be a theme or it may be um, a central question guiding a collection, or it may be an experience that, that maybe I have or haven't had. But that, you know, if, if it's a good collection, it's something I can connect into. And I, I don't expect when I am reading a poetry book to walk away with, with any answers. If I do, great. If not, though, I would at least like to have more questions posed, perhaps, that I hadn't had when entering, that allow me the ability to orient my life in a changed way. I wonder, is that part of the intention of your writing practice too, like to pose questions or are you searching for answers? Yes, a little bit of both, I think. I love posing questions that I have to readers and almost as if like, hey, do you, do you ever have these questions too? <laughs> Let's explore them together. And then some like, you know, if, if I feel like I have an answer, then than maybe sharing that answer with readers. I don't feel like I have very many answers though. Um, so it is, it is mostly posing questions and just exploring on the page with readers in that journey, I think. I think that is just a big part of my art. The earth is a confounding place. <laughs> and uh, poetry is just one avenue for me to help understand the world that we live in. I know I've heard you talk to other interviewers about current work that you're doing or that you're thinking of. Are you posing any particular questions on the heels of having completed your work on spit? Yeah, spit is, um, it was quite an undertaking. You know, it took me like 10 years to write this collection. So it is, it's hard to take a, such a large part of your life that you really threw all of yourself into and turn to the next project so easily. And that I really feel for <laughs> Amanda Frost, you're, you're a wonderful editor uh, at MSU Press in helping me um, sort of say goodbye to uh, Spit as a project and, 
and closing that that book of of my life, I think, that and turning the next page. Yeah, I am still sort of exploring different questions. And maybe they're coalescing into a collection now. I'm not really sure. I admire those poets who take their time in writing the next collection. I feel like it, it takes a certain degree of restraint in terms of, you know, getting out the next book. You know, there's, um, I'm thinking of the poet like Frank Paino, who went, I think, 22 years or something between his latest book and his previous one. That it just takes a lot of dedication to, to the art and making it, making it right for what the next project is that you share with the world, and um, that that's the type of artist I think that I want to be, is one who's really deliberate in terms of of what I put out, you know, making sure that that it is the best that it can possibly be, and that it has the layers and the nuance and everything that really makes a collection of poetry stand beyond its time of publication, where you can approach it decades later and still find some meaning and, and, and movement and resonance in a collection. That, that's the work that I most admire out there in terms of poetry books that I keep returning to. And that's, that's sort of where my attention is for the most part. So in terms of like questions of what I'm exploring now, Spit is a, has a, a very strong spiritual through line to it. Um, and I have been following that thread most recently and just seeing where it takes me. I'm not sure if it's going to re- lead to the next collection or not, but that's sort of where my head is at right now. And of course, a sense of belonging and and sort of understanding what we mean by belonging is still very present in in my work, I think. And in my most recent poems that I've been writing, um, those are are all sort of um, areas where I'm I'm digging, I'm digging into to try and explore and find answers and, you know, as as poets do. Well, it's really exciting to hear that the work continues. And I think it's also admirable that you're willing to give it the space and time that it takes to distill itself or to be distilled into something as focused and layered and as interesting as your collection spit. I hope that we've given listeners a good sense of just a few of the many different avenues and and interests and things to explore there. And I think that's probably, Daniel, a good place to leave it. So I just want to say before we go, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. I have really enjoyed spending time with your book and thinking about, you know, what it is to write a life experience, what it is to, you know, grow up in a in a different kind of place in the world and how we can nevertheless bring that experience into conversation with larger, more general human experience and and poetry and art and all of those things. So thank you so much for taking the time today. Thank you. It was just so much fun to talk with you. Thank you again. Yeah, happy to do it. Daniel's book is available at msupress.org and other fine booksellers. You can find out more about him and his work on Twitter at DLaSalle and on his website, daniel-lasalle.com. You can connect with the press on Facebook and at MSU Press on Twitter, where you can also find me at Kurt Mill. 
The MSU Press Podcast is a joint production of MSU Press and the College of Arts and Letters at Michigan State University. Thanks to the team at MSU Press for helping to produce this podcast. Our theme music is Coffee by Cambo. Michigan State University occupies the ancestral, traditional, and contemporary lands of the Anishinaabeg Three Fires Confederacy of Ojibwe, Odawa, and Potawatomi people. The university resides on land ceded in the 1819 Treaty of Saginaw. Thank you all so much for listening, and never give up on books.